going to talk about Everlasting Father, uh, Isaiah 9-6, if you have your Bibles. And we'll do it again just like we have the last couple weeks. We're going to look at this one designation uh, from Isaiah's prophecy about the Messiah, how Jesus fulfills that particular designation. And uh, I hope that this has done the same for you that it has for me in helping me to understand Jesus as the Messiah so much more. We have the Gospels that tell us about the life of Jesus and obviously the death, burial, and resurrection. The New Testament letters share the implications of Jesus' life and, and the Gospel and how that was played out in the church. And then obviously in the book of Revelation, you have like the Jesus of the future and what that's going to look like. But these prophecies in the Old Testament help us to understand things about Jesus that just give us a bigger, better, fuller understanding and picture of him. And at Christmas, what better place to be than Isaiah 9-6? This is like one of the Christmas passages. And as we've talked about Jesus as the wonderful counselor, realizing that Jesus the Messiah possesses the absolute wisdom of God. And as the mighty God, he displays and possesses the absolute power of God. And each of these designations helps us to understand Jesus better. And I know for all of the for all the application and the self-help and all of the, like, we want to know how this impacts our lives. I got to tell you that some of the best things that we can learn from the Bible is just who our great God is. And when we understand God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we dig into Jesus as God's Son, as God the Son at Christmas, and this should induce worship in our lives. And so that's a lot of what this series is about. I started at the very beginning of this series saying, I want to give you one more thing to do to be a good Christian at Christmas. I just want you to see a little bit more of who Jesus is and worship him at Christmas. If we can just accomplish that, I think that does a lot for us in the Christmas season, right? So today, I'll just be honest with you. This is a tough one. Jesus is everlasting father. We're talking about wonderful counselor. That's an easy one. Mighty God. That's a pretty easy one. Next week, Prince of Peace. I'm super excited about Christmas Eve and preaching on Jesus as the Prince of Peace. But when we say everlasting father, that gets a little tricky, right? Because I thought God the father was father. Does this mean that God the son is father? Like, how does that work? Why would a prophet 700 years before Jesus say that this son is going to be an everlasting father. So I will admit to you this morning, we got a little digging to do. This is going to get a little bit deeper. I'm going to quote some theologians and quote some ancient church creeds and things like that. Uh, it's going to get a little bit deeper this morning. For both of you that enjoy that, this is going to be your thing, right? The other 150 of you, we got a problem. Hang with me. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable and this is so profitable and it's so good and it's so important because it helps us understand again deeper more significant picture of who Jesus is so start off with that word father every word that we use in the English language as well as every language that's ever existed living now or dead languages like ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek every language uh, every word in, in any language has what they call a semantic range I told you it was going to get a little deeper. Some of you just learned a new word. Semantic range means all the different ways that a particular word might be used, all the different things that that word could mean. When we use the word father in English, it has quite a vast semantic range. It can mean a lot of different things. And since I knew this would be deep and a little bit heavier, I did what I need all the time when things get deep and heavy. You know what that is? 
a book of pictures, right? We need pictures. So I brought some pictures along. Let's think about this term father and like the ways that we use it in our culture and in our world. The first one would be obvious, right? It's your, it's your, the person who gave you life, your biological father. Or if you're adopted, that person who welcomed you into their life and adopted you in that way. And so in, in that one way or another, what was the life giver for you? Here's a picture. This is a picture of my dad and Lindsay's dad on my wedding day. You're like, what are they doing? This was like to show how poor they were after my wedding. I thought it was, I thought it was funny then. I, I feel like it's a lot less funny now with three teenage daughters. But that's those, those two guys, right? And, and my dad up here, people have said that I bear a little bit of resemblance to him. You'll have to decide that on your own. But it's my dad and my, and my wife's dad, and uh, they're, they're meaningful men. And, and the thing is, is for each of us, when I say father, and you think of your biological dad, that term has some baggage, doesn't it? For some of us, it's like good baggage. It's like dad was great, dad was there, dad was present, dad was involved, I love dad. Christmas is a great season because dad's still around and we're going to be with dad and it's going to be great. For others of us, that term has some negative connotations and negative baggage. Dad was gone. Dad was emotionally checked out and detached. Whatever it is, right? But that's one of the ways that we use father. And so just that word, understanding that word means that when I come to the Bible and I read about father, I'm going to start to, to put some of that understanding over my understanding of what it, what that means. So that's your biological dad. We use father in another way around here. We, we talk about fictional dads, right? Like TV dads and movie dads. Here are some of the best and maybe some of the worst. I'll let you determine which is which. Now, I want to tell you, we have a theologically astute crowd in the first service, and I just want to give them props. I had a different picture up there uh, for, for Mufasa and Simba. One of my favorite father-son combos, by the way, okay? But I had a different picture up there, and I Googled Mufasa and Simba, and I took a picture that I liked, and I put it up there, and someone called me out after the service. He said, that's not Mufasa and Simba. That's Simba and Simba's son from Simba 2, and I don't even remember the name of it, right? That's a theological error. We can make those here, and I just ask for your forgiveness ahead of time. But Marlon, I identify, dads, I hope you do too, with Marlon as a dad, because I am so overprotective. Amen, girls? Okay, never mind, right? But Marlon, yeah, and then you've got like, you know, the, the greatest dad of all time, right? There you go. Luke, I'm your father. Okay, sorry. I don't know who this guy is over here, because I wasn't allowed to watch that show as a kid, uh, and my mom's here today, but anyway, right? But here's, here's the point. You're like, why are we putting this up there? Because you're laughing. That's the whole point. No, not really. Here's the thing. In our culture, some of the ways that we understand and, and define and identify dad is because of what TV and movies does to that. I would challenge you, take TV and movies, I would say from probably the 1980s, but especially like the 90s and 2000s and up to now, and watch any TV show that depicts a family. 95% of the time, you know what you're going to learn about dads from fictional fathers? They're either absent or they're bumbling idiots, right? Watch the shows on Disney. Like we watched Disney before we boycotted Disney, right? We would watch the Disney shows with the kids when they were little. All the dads are either absent or they're bumbling idiots. Who's the hero of all of those shows? It's usually the kids and sometimes the moms who are all coming in to save us from the dummy who's the dad. Do you think that does something to the way that we understand father when we open God's word and we read about a father? 
Absolutely. Because we could become indoctrinated by those things. So that's another way that we use the term father. Here's another usage of father that I think actually it can be helpful. You know who these guys are? Hey, look at that. You guys are smart. I heard the school kids and everybody. I had to write them down. I had to ask Siri who they were. I went to Christian school. Thank you very much. <laughs> they were all Christians according to the Christian school. But anyway, that's a different sermon. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, and James Madison, the founding fathers, the guys who got together and, and, and developed democracy and developed this new way of doing a country and doing politics and all of those things. They were the founding fathers. In, in a lot of ways, they were the, the pioneers or the originators. So that's a, another way we use the name father. I'll put a couple more pictures up there. Maybe meaningless to most of you. But history has told us that these two men are, are fathers. Galileo is known as the father of science. Hippocrates is known as the father of medicine, right? They, they were the pioneers of the way that we do science today, the way that we do medicine today. And so history put that marker on them as the father of these two major areas. You see, another way that we use the term father those are just some of the ways that we use the term father. Ancient Near Eastern people even had other ways, and they'll be important for us in understanding how we read the word that we're reading in Isaiah 9-6. For ancient Near Eastern people, another way that they understood father is someone who possessed a quality, right? They would call a man like Dick Irwin the father of wisdom. I was expecting an amen, Dick, and I didn't get it. Wow, you got kids and grandkids here. They sold you out. Your wife shut your mouth, I get it, right? But, but when somebody possessed, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, when somebody possessed a, a certain quality to the extreme, they would say they were the father of that, the father of wisdom. Another person may be called the father of folly, okay? Wives, some of you can nudge your husbands on that one, right? No volunteers, please. But there was to show that they possessed something in an increasing quality. Another really important way that they used the term father was for a king or a ruler. In those days, sometimes the connotation of king came with negative baggage. A king may have been someone who was known to be violent and corrupt and those kind of things. And if, if, if a people wanted to, in writing, or if they wanted to verbally express that they really loved their king, they would call that king father to show that he was the ideal king, a benevolent king, a good ruler. In addition to those ways, in the New Testament and in our church age, for the roughly the last 2,000 years, we have known of God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. What's important for us to understand is that in the Old Testament, they didn't think in those same terms. That with the New Testament and the closing of the canon of Scripture and then subsequent history of the church, that we understood and identified, not created, but identified the doctrine of the Trinity, which is, the, is a foundational key doctrine. But in the Old Testament, they weren't thinking God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when the first Israelites heard Isaiah prophesy of the everlasting Father, they didn't carry the same baggage as we do in saying, is he talking about God the Father or God the Son? Okay, That's really important for us to uh, distinguish these because as I've just showed you, you can talk about a biological father, an adoptive father, 
You can talk about a fictional father. You can talk about a pioneer or an originator in something. Someone who possesses a quality, a king or a ruler. You can talk about God as father. And all of those are ways that we understand this term. And our goal is to understand what Scripture is saying specifically about Jesus related to this term. There have been major veins of heresy through the history of the church because people have gotten this verse wrong. One that is prevalent even today is called oneness Pentecostalism. And oneness Pentecostals believe that when, when God came to earth, God the Father took on a body, and so when Jesus walked around, that was God the Father walking around in the person of Jesus. Church, that's heresy. That's a, an unbiblical teaching about Jesus. In addition to that, for 2,000 years, there's been a heresy known as modalism, and this is really interesting. I talked about this in the first service. The heresy of modalism basically says this, that you have one God, and that when he needs to be father, then he becomes father. When he needs to be son, then he's son. When he needs to be Holy Spirit, then he's Holy Spirit. He just kind of changes modes and shapeshifts and does what he needs to do. That's been a heresy for a long time. There were creeds and councils developed against that heresy. I had a guy come up to me after the first service, and he said that George Barna, a Christian uh, guy who does polls and things like that, that George Barna did a, a survey of the church not too long ago that 70% of people who go to church regularly, without knowing it, self-identified as modalists. That they couldn't articulate a Trinitarian theology. They thought, yeah, God, sometimes he's the Father, and sometimes he's the Son, and sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. That's bad theology, that's heretical, and it has lots of, of negative connotations. For example, if this is just God the Father in the manger, then like who's in control of history and the world and all things, right? We want to get theology right. And I know that for some of us, man, we start talking theology and we're like, is it nap time yet? Right? Nope, only 11.25. But what this does, hopefully, what this does is it helps us worship it helps us understand Jesus better so that we can worship him more accurately. I'll quote a couple of theologians, because what you do when you're dealing with something that's difficult is you quote people who are smarter than you. For me, that's not hard. I'll quote pretty much anybody, and it's like, okay, I got it. Theologian by the name of Sam Storms says this, that when in Isaiah 9-6, when Isaiah calls the Messiah the everlasting father, it, it means this. He says it's a descriptive analogy pointing us to Christ's character. A descriptive analogy pointing us to Christ's character. So as we go in a minute to the New Testament, we look at how does Jesus show us the everlasting Father. This is stuff about the character of God the Son. Stuff about the character of Jesus. Alistair Begg. Is, have any of you heard of Alistair Begg? Oh man, you've got to listen to him on the radio. Really great preacher. But even better, he's got this really thick Scottish brogue, and so you just, you just know he's smart. I should have had him read this. Alistair Begg says this is an indicator of the quality of the Messiah with respect to his people. An indicator of the quality, the character of the Messiah with respect to his people. How does Jesus relate to us? How does Jesus relate to his people? And so as we go through this, and we're talking about the everlasting Father, again, we're not talking about things that God the Father does. We're talking about Jesus as God the Son, the Messiah, 
and his fatherly character, his character toward us as his people. And so this morning I'll give us four ways that I think that the New Testament shows us Jesus revealing himself as everlasting father. The first one of those is this, is that Jesus is the possessor of eternity. Jesus is the possessor of eternity. Colossians 1.17 says that he is before all things. We talked about that extensively last week, so I won't talk about it again. But I want you to see the pre-existence of God the Son. Hebrews 13.8 then goes the other direction. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus is before all things pre-existent. And that Jesus is eternal and everlasting. That's important for us because, as I said, there's actually a major theology that hangs on this idea. It's called the eternal generation or eternal sonship of God the Son. And what it fights against is this idea. There are lots of people throughout the course of church history and cults today who would say that Jesus was not always God. That God the Son was not God the Son. And that Jesus came and he was a person and that he achieved godness. Different groups will say that, that he became God at different times. Some say that in the incarnation that he became God. Others say that at his baptism, when the Spirit of God descended on him, that he became God at that point. But he wasn't preexistent. He was just a person who became God. Then others will take that a step further, and they will say Jesus became God. Why? So that you can become a God as well. And again, cult groups, especially for us men, who will say, then you can become a god, and you can have your own planet, and you can have multiple, multiple wives. And all the men are like, I can ha hardly handle one. Oh, sorry. I love it when I say something, and you're like, should I laugh or not? Your wife's nudging you, like, don't go there. My wife was in the first service. Guess what joke I didn't use in that service? Thank you very much. Oh, wait, this is online, isn't it? I'm in trouble. The eternal sonship of God the Son is a, a, a doctrine that you have to believe to be a Christian. Okay? It's, a, it's a primary doctrine. You're not a Christian if you're like, yeah, I think Jesus is a pretty good guy, and then like God turned him into God. Or he became like an under God, and then I can look up to that and become a God as well. The eternal sonship of God is so important that for a couple hundred years after the founding of the church in Acts, it was never in question by the people who got it right, but it was always in question by other people. Different things about the identity of Jesus were always being fought about. And so in the fourth century, a group of people got together, a group of people who loved God and wanted truth and wanted to discern and understand truth got together. And throughout the course of early church history, this happened on several occasions. The one I'm referring to is called the Council of Nicaea. Many of you have heard of the Council of Nicaea. And they would bring men together and they would lay out the scripture and they would check each other and balance each other. And at the Council of Nicaea, one of the things that they were talking about was this very issue. The eternal sonship. Was Jesus, was God the Son always God or did he just kind of like become God? They're like, this is foundational to what's going to happen for Christianity. And here's what they determined and what they said. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now, now, before that, they said, we believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, right? They said that piece. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
eternally begotten of the Father, eternally generating uh, from the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. You see what they're saying? They're saying that, that God the Son is God equally with God the Father. That there wasn't this like, um, how do I say it in human terms? Uh, there was, there's differences in the roles, but there's no difference in, in es- the essence of who they are. God the Father and God the Son are ontologically equal. Okay. True God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. They're talking about the eternality of God the Son. And some of us are like, just tell me how to make more money and fix my finances and my marriage. And I'm like, Jesus is God the Son, and He's always been God the Son. And here's why that's so important for us. That when we talk about this, that Jesus is the possessor of eternity, there are some significant implications. Like, theology always matters, you guys. Theology isn't just for, like, Christian bobblehead dolls to sit in ivory towers and just think they're so smart. To write papers that the rest of us can't read. Theology always matters, and everyone's a theologian. Even our teenagers are theologians. Our kids are little theologians, because we believe things about God, and that it impacts our lives. And here's why this one matters especially, is that what we say when we talk about Jesus coming and being in a manger is that the child who entered into time also ruled over time. That the child who entered into this world was the ruler of the world. That makes all the difference in the world. As a matter of fact, the verse of Scripture that played a significant role in my conversion and in many of your conversions is dramatically impacted by the eternal sonship of Jesus, of God the Son. How many of you would say that John 3.16 played some role in you becoming a Christian? Just raise your hands. It did for me. I've shared my testimony here before, right? John 3.16 was read. I believed it. I understood it. I accepted Christ to be my Savior. But watch this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? But have eternal life. Only the possessor of eternal life can provide eternal life. You see why that matters so much when we think about Jesus? Only the possessor of eternal life can provide eternal life. Later in the sermon, I'm going to give you six different passages that talk about Jesus as the giver of eternal life. Only the one who possesses eternal life. You can't provide something. if, If you promise something and you can't provide it, that makes you a bad person, right? If I promise my kids, like, I'm going to get you each a horse for Christmas, that's going to be a problem. My backyard's about 15 feet square, right? Okay, not quite that bad, but it's not going to hold three horses, and neither's my bank account. If I promised and I got him excited and we're doing this, yes, yay, woohoo, and then they showed up and I gave him like, you know, little toy horses, those rocking horses, not okay, right? Jesus promised eternal life. Jesus can provide eternal life because Jesus possesses eternal life. That's why our theology matters. He's the possessor of eternal life. Point number two, Jesus is also the founder of our faith. We said that one of the ways that people understand the term father, and I would argue that the scriptures understand the term father, is that 
one who was a founder of something. Hebrews 12.2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Some of your Bibles may say something a little bit different than founder. It may say founder. It may say uh, the word author. Uh, a third one that I wrote down was pioneer. The pioneer, I think, is the New International Version. Uh, but you think about what a founder does or an author does or, or a pioneer does, right? My friend Jason is an author, and he writes military sci-fi, and it's very creative stuff, if I do say so myself. You should read it. Do I get a commission? No, I'm just kidding. But as you think about what an author does when they sit down to write book fiction, nonfiction, whatever it is, is they're coming up with a concept and they're creating a world, creating a storyline, figuring out how the characters and the cast move. And they're, uh, sometimes they put in what they call an omniscient narrator that's telling the story and kind of knows all the pieces and how it all fits together. When you hear of God as the author, or Jesus, God the Son, is the author of our faith, you think about it in that way. What about pioneers? I read a book recently. It was about the Donner Party. You guys remember that one in history class? That was weird, right? But it made me like, it just opened my eyes to what these pioneer people went through. And you think that those who came after them were able to do what they were able to do because the pioneers paved the way. Scripture says, looking to Jesus, the pioneer, the author, the founder, and perfecter of our faith. That that's Jesus. As we talked about the founding fathers and doing what the founding fathers did to found this country. The, the founder and the perfecter. The perfecter, this is saying the beginning and the end. The starting point for our faith and the end point for our faith. Carrying it out to fruition. Here's a quote that I love that regards this. It says that your biography begins... Begins... <coughs> begins continues and ends with Jesus Christ. That's like the story of your life as a Christian. If you're a believer, the story of your life begins, continues, and ends with Jesus. He chose you before time. You were born into Him. That means you became a Christian in due time, at the right time. Christ is being formed in you in the present time. And you will be matured and perfected in Christ at a future time. In the words of Scripture, Jesus is the author and the finisher of your faith. You see, as a Christian, your whole life is about what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing and what Jesus will do. And I want to say this as well. That some of us think that Jesus is the author of our story, and He's not. Because we've not placed our faith and our trust in Him. Jesus is the author of your story. Uh-oh, come in. Jesus is... <laughs> Jesus is not the author of your story when you come to church. Jesus is not the author of your story when you were born into a Christian family. Jesus was not the author of your story when you got enrolled in Christian school. Jesus did not become the author of your story when you gave money to the church. Jesus didn't become the author of your story when you did something really good for God. Jesus becomes the author of your story when you place your faith in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus became the author of my story at four years old when John 3.16 was read, and I prayed and I confessed that I'm a sinner and I needed Jesus to forgive me for my salvation. That's when He became the author of my story. 
from my standpoint. Now, somebody will say, well, what about that eternity past, chosen in Him, all that? Yep, get it, believe it, for sure. But from my standpoint, that's where it's at, right? That my story begins at that point. So I want to say this to you. Don't fall under the false assumption that Jesus is the author of your story if He's not. If you've not actually placed your faith in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. And then what this text teaches us, again, the Hebrews text, as well as books of the Bible, Romans, this, this quote's almost like an outline of the book of Romans, is that Jesus is at work in us for our sanctification and our growth. And that ultimately that will lead to our glorification, where we don't become gods, right? But we become what God always intended and created for us to be, living in right relationship with God. And He's at work in our lives. Jesus is the founder of, of your faith. Jesus is also the revealer of the Father heart of God. And I think that this is maybe, and this is a longer passage, I'll talk about it a little bit, but man, this is so important, so vital for us to understand that as the everlasting Father, that Jesus, God the Son, revealed the Father heart of God to His people. Let me read it. Jesus said to him, I am the way. By the way, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples here. Okay? This is like that last night when Jesus is with his disciples before he's going to be arrested. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we love that quote. We love to use it. Here's the context. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, now, if you don't know who Philip is, Philip was, again, one of the followers of Jesus. He was a real practical guy. He needed to see it, right? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Like, just let us give us a glimpse. You got a picture of him on your phone? Is there some way that you can just kind of show us? This is what the Father looks like. But in John's gospel, a few chapters before this, remember what he said? Like, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Jesus said to him, verse 9, Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You're like, whoa, that sounds like oneness Pentecostal. That sounds like Jesus is like God the Father right now and here. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is talking about how he reveals God the Father to us, and how he revealed God the Father while he was on earth. I'll give you an illustration to, to maybe get somewhere close to it. And this illustration isn't going to, in any way, because we can't, encapsulate this whole idea. A few years ago, I went back home to Delaware to, to visit my family. I took Linz and the girls. We we're going to go for Christmas. And while we were there, we were going to visit this tiny little restaurant that one of my cousins actually owned. It's closed down now, but at that time, owned the restaurant. And we're going to go and we're going to eat there. It used to be a gas station. The best food in Delaware is at gas stations. Don't ask me why, but it's true. We're going to go and we're going to eat at this little restaurant. It was pouring rain. My mom was driving me because she's a good mama. And so she dropped me off at the front door so she could go park the car. I know that messes with some of our theology. We can talk about that later. 
You went to park the car, and I go to walk into this little restaurant. I've never been in the restaurant before. I don't know the people who are in there working at the present time. I walk in the front door. A lady walks out, looks at me. I've never seen her before. She's not met me before. She looks at me. She says, if you're not the son of Vince Imhoff, I don't know who you are. Creepy. Backing out. Backing out. Mom! Get in here! Because if you see some pictures of my dad at my age and me now, one time, this is another true story. Mom, somebody sent me a picture And I was like, I don't remember having that picture taken with those people at that place. Like, what in the world? Where was I? Where was this? And they said, that's your dad. I mistook my dad for me because of the resemblance that's there, right? In a a small, distorted, small way, that's what John is getting at. That to see Jesus is to see some things about the Father. I think John is talking about to see Jesus was to see and understand the heart, the mission of the Father. There are other places where Jesus talks about that, that he came to show what Jesus was all about, or what God the Father was up to, what God was all about. So the mission of the Father, the character of the Father, the identity of the Father. When John is saying all this, I am in him and he is in me, and that's the way that he's saying that, is that he came to reveal the Father heart of God. And I want you to know this. That I can bear a little bit of resemblance to my dad. There are times in my life, for better or for worse, when I may say something or act in a certain way that reminds me or somebody of my father. We have this little accent. It's a Delaware accent. It's not a Pennsylvania accent, thank you. And don't you dare say it's a New Jersey accent because them's fighting words, okay? But when I go home, I start to talk a little bit more (laughs) like that. When Jesus revealed the Father, he only as the everlasting Father, only as God could he reveal God. I can reveal little things about my dad in broken ways. You're not going to know much about my dad by seeing and talking to me. But we can know everything that God wants us to know about himself by understanding Jesus and how God has revealed himself in his word. Okay? Jesus reveals God, and here's the implication. Again, these are theological points. I want you to have an implication for your life from each one. Here's the implication. You want to get to know God? Get to know Jesus. You want to have a relationship with God? Have a relationship with Jesus. See, we live in a culture where lots of people want to know lots of things about God. Lots of people have this general vague spirituality and this general idea of God. And I want to have a relationship with a God, right? You want to get to know God? You want to have a relationship with God? Get to know Jesus. Grow your relationship with Jesus. And how do you do that? You spend time in his word. You understand him. You you learn him. You spend time with other Christians, talking and figuring out. You, You think about theology, Right? Again, good conversations with people after the first service and saying, you know what, like, there are good churches that are out there that are teaching and preaching theology. The concern is this, that you either go to a church and they make it all about you, okay, and they don't preach any theology, or they preach theology and they don't put any pictures of Bart Simpson up. And that's just boring, right? Like, we don't need that. Give me a little Bart Simpson with my theology, No, you can easily take theology and just make it super boring. But what I want us to know is that theology matters because it matters for how we respond and react to God. 
Jesus is the revealer. Number four, Jesus is the giver of eternal life. And I told you this one's coming. And I got several texts. I just want to read them to you. I want you to see what Scripture says about Jesus as the one who gives eternal life. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's a believing and an obeying peace, right? Like, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he was and is God, that he died in my place for my sins. I accept him, and I continue to obey him. By my obedience, I show my faith. By my obedience, I reveal my faith. I I don't get faith through my obedience, but I show my faith through my obedience. That's what he's talking about in this text. The next one, also in John's Gospel, John 4.14. This is when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well in Samaria. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let me tell you the cool thing about eternal life, right? We talk about everlasting life. We talk about eternal life. Is there a difference in those terms? When we talk about everlasting, it's a duration of time. We talk about eternal, we're talking about a quality. Eternal life has to do with, like, I'm going to be with Jesus in heaven in the future, right? But did you know the eternal life starts at the moment that you accept Christ as your Savior? And it changes, it should change, the quality of your life right now. Why is it that someone can pass away who's a believer, and that a group of Christians can come to a memorial service, a pastor can stand up and celebrate and give thanks And people can smile and laugh and then can go over and can eat food together and share stories and remember and do those things and have a spirit of joy in that, right? Why is that? It's because of eternal life. Because that quality of life right now helps me to cope with the difficulties of of life. If I know what the future holds in terms of my life, If I know what the future holds in terms of eternal life, it changes the way that I face things right now. That's why Christians face cancer different. That's why Christians face depression different. That's why Christians face divorce and uncertainty and political upheaval and all the things differently, church. It's because of eternal life. We sell ourselves short and we sell the gospel short when we think that this eternal life is just this thing I'm going to experience sometime in the future. Like I'm going to die and I'm going to be with Jesus. Yes and amen, but it also affects everything that we do right now. That's why Jesus could say it's going to spring up and well up in us. John chapter 6, verse 40 and 47, this is the will of my Father. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Belief is essential for eternal life. One more from John, John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I want to say this over and over again. The, eternal, the, the giver of eternal life is not what we used to be able to call, we used to call, and I know we can't do it anymore, an Indian giver. It's not he gave eternal life, then he took it back. Then he gave eternal life, and then he took it back. And then he gave eternal life, and I was a bad boy, so he took it back. And he gave eternal life, and I committed a sin, and he took it back. No, that's not God. The giver of eternal life gives eternal life. 
and doesn't keep taking it back. It says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one's snatching them out of my hand. And I'm not going to drop them. They can't jump out. All the things that people say to get around this verse. The idea is the one who gives eternal life provides eternal security. Okay? If you're really, truly a Christian, really a believer, you're eternally secure. And only the giver of eternal life can give eternal security. Some of you need to take rest in that this morning. Romans 6.23, famous passage that we use to help people understand the gospel. The wages, the payment of sin is eternal death, separation from God. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's Christmas time. What's the best gift that you're going to give somebody this year? Don't answer that out loud, please, right? Think about it. I love to give gifts to our daughters, man. We love Christmas and giving gifts, and they open it, and they're all excited. Woohoo! this is fun, except for the time it was a reptile. That wasn't cool. But they love, we, we love to give gifts to our girls, man. The best gift that we ever gave our kids? Life, right? That's the best gift. And I remind them of that frequently. I brought you into this world, and you know what else? Okay, you know you do it too. Come on, right? Eternal life, man, the free gift of God is the greatest gift that's ever been given, eternal life. One more, 1 John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? That you may know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. You can know that you have eternal life. Side note, starting in the beginning of January, that's our study the book of 1 John, we're going to start chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to take a few months to just go through it a little bit at a time because what I want us to know is the surety that we have eternal life. There's so many ideas out there about what saved is and unsaved is, and there's so many things out there about all that salvation stuff. And we get to see some really amazing stuff from 1 John about what, how we can know that we have eternal life. That's Jesus as the everlasting Father. He possesses eternity. He's the founder of our faith. He's the revealer of God's heart. And he's the giver of eternal life. Now, I don't know about you, but once again, that might not be something for me to go out and do, but that is a God that I can worship. That's a God that I can get excited about worshiping. That's a, that's a concept that changes Christmas for me. As I said before, this study for me is helping me to understand a deeper picture of who we celebrate at Christmas. And as I lay each of these things out, and you see in the Old Testament and the New Testament, man, the ways that this changes our faith, and the way that it changes our understanding of Jesus, it changes the way that we worship. So man, I pray that for you, even this week, that it helps you. Because you know what I think? As I see a better picture of Jesus, all of that Christmas crazy, like, it keeps it in perspective, doesn't it? right? All that busyness, and you know you got eight more days, gentlemen, right? I know you got five more till you start your shopping. You got eight more days until it's over, right? And this is when that stress starts to kick up, and you begin to realize, oh my gosh, like, uh, I'm gonna have to pay for expedited shipping. But at the end of the day, man, this puts it in perspective, so let it keep it in perspective. We've got the sermon supplement. Again, there's some there, but uh, the QR codes will get you to it. The app will get you to it. I put some extra reading, some links to just a couple of blogs that are in there. Really helpful to help you think through this some more and, and help you to worship the Lord uh, throughout this holiday season.